Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, Impossible Numbering System 9.2, The State of the Left and Strategies of Orientation. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about strategies of orientation around labor, around the DSA, around law. Um, partly to address some criticisms of the last State of the Left episode, partly to kind of get our head around the various strategic or, uh, orientations that exist right now, and partly to bring up some of the contradictions in the different things get called by the same name, mm. which is going to be, I, I think, a big thing today when we get into our discussions of orientation towards labor, because rank and file strategy um, is about 50 different things to about 50 different people. Yeah. And um, some of them are, I think, pernicious. Some of them are just classic good old unionism. And so it's going to be very important to distinguish that. But I also think we have to distinguish a little bit more clearly the broader tendencies of the factions and, and slates in the DSA. I have done some more interviews and some more talking to people since the last recording that we did a couple weeks mm. ago. And then I think we have to look at the overall milieu in regards to the fact that the left is shrinking um, in mm. a very real way. And I think like that's the elephant in the room in the last discussion that people just kind of don't want to look at. But, you know, just to remind people, my thesis is our current orientations leave us with a problem that is very similar to the problem of the late 1990s, early aughts, where, you know, you have third parties, you have sectarian groups, you have a couple of clearinghouse. Back then it was movements. Now it's movements plus one organization that's fairly large. Um but nothing seems to be actually growing. And despite the fact that there seems to be more militancy everywhere. And right. so that's where I think we are. We're, uh, we're two weeks out from our last recording. Uh, subsequent to that, uh, we have seen um, some very heartening things coming out of the Midwest of the United States. Um, we did on the Antifada a big episode last week. Uh, about the ins and outs, the political economy of uh, the big strike that's happening right now. Uh, by the time this episode airs, at least on the Antifada, you will have seen both uh, Joe Biden, opportunistically or not, go down to the picket lines and stand with the United Auto Workers. You'll also see Donald Trump going down there and addressing uh, machinists and others uh, at a huge rally. So this is an important time right now, a crucial time, as it seems as though, at least in this one instance, uh, the trade union movement uh, in the United States, such as it is, uh, has taken a step that's, I think, far more adversarial and far more interesting, maybe, than one we've seen in a while. One that we had hoped perhaps the railroad strike might have provided uh, is instead, for historical and contingent reasons, uh, the UAW taking the, the forefront in uh, a much more combative and supple, I think, um, strike against the big three automakers. So a lot of the conversation that we're going to have today and the discussion that we're going to have today uh, is grounded in um, current events and news. And a lot of the theoretical stuff can be applied practically. When I threw out last week uh, on the Antifada, uh, I threw out a gambit, which is that since, uh, with probably some ex small exceptions, since the left uh, so designated 
has very little, or at least the millennial left, let's say, has very little input and very little um, organizing capacity on the ground uh, in what might end up being uh, a very important historical strike. The gambit is, what do we do? And I mean that broadly. I mean you and me, and I mean everybody listening, but well beyond that. What do we do to ensure that in four years when the next uh, contract negotiation fight comes up, uh, that we have much more ability to actually uh, press forward our political positions, be on the ground, uh, and be able to integrate ourselves into the struggle in a way that hasn't seemed possible this time around. And again, you know, you're talking about eight, nine years since the original uh, Bernie Sanders wave in 2015, 2016. It seems as though union leadership under Sean Fain and the people he represents within the United Auto Workers for uh, Democracy have taken some lessons from some of the people that we'll be talking about today, Joe Burns, uh, Jane McAlevey. What is our place within that? Where do we uh, land? Where might we imagine ourselves in a few years uh, being an organic part of this struggle and being able to uh, put communist, socialist, anarchist positions forward? So, I sigh because you frame this in a positive sense, and I think we have much to feel good about um, in regards to the the UAW and to a lesser degree the the writers guild and SAG strikes etc. However, Please. I've been through this before. Yeah, and I don't get fooled anymore. So, um, and I think that's going to be a tension between us here is when we talk about this future orientation. It's when we look at the theoretical underpinnings of this right now and the shifts that have happened since the the UAW's seeming utter defeat in 2007-2008, it's, uh, it's bureaucratic corruption. The left not being that involved in the Sean Fain reformist caucus stuff. But there's also limitations to all that that we've also seen before. And in some ways, I think I'm trying not to sound like Dr. No, that never, ever good things happen. But on the other hand, I do think there is this tendency to get immediately caught up in and draw long-term lessons from a short-term strategic gain. So when we talk about, say, McElvey, um, Jay McElvey's work, we're going to see a lot of lessons deduced from a mixture of a romanticized vision of the CAO in the 30s mm. um, with the lessons of 2012 and the Chicago teacher strike. Mm. And if you look at where teachers are today, the teacher strike may not have happened. Mm. And I know that probably makes people very upset. And that's not to say that it didn't have immediate real effects in places like Chicago, because it absolutely did. And it's not to say that it even found workarounds around limitations normally put on union on unionization efforts beyond um, what's generally allowed by the National Labor Relations Board, etc. But we do have to look and see that the conditions for teachers by and large have gotten so bad that the idea of a massive union push 
in most of the country doesn't seem like it would be sufficient to reverse the decline of the position. Mm. Uh, similarly, in the United Auto Workers scenario, there's a lot of conflict in the United Auto Workers themselves about how they should orient towards electric cars and whatnot because it's not very good in their immediate interest. And that's going to put them at odds with other parts of the working class and the development of a transition. There's no way around that. doesn't mean that these people are against clean energy. They're not. Uh, I think if you offered them a better deal on some of the elements of electric car manufacturer, um, they would be more conducive to it. But there's still other problems there, I mean, some of which is that like skill sets and stuff that they've developed in their craft will be made irrelevant. Mm. That's part of why this is happening right now, Sean. Yes, and I'm well aware of that. Did you listen to our episode last yeah, week? I did. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, however, um, we do have to deal with the fact that the economy in the United States, as it shifts away from its prior geopolitical orientation and you know i'll put you i'll put it verbatim what that orientation is uh i was just listening to patrick boyle uh not a leftist at all uh, go over the major trade partners in the with the united states and we have shifted from china being our number one trade partner to mexico being our number one trade partner um, for industrial production and that um, while there are some problems with it, the Mexican and U.S. Uh, supply chain will be far more integrated than prior bits of offshoring. This is not exactly, it's not going to repeat that, mm. which means there's going to be massive shifts in industrial production and the nature of what, where people are going to go for jobs. Um, the relation to our immediate neighbors, political stability, um, pressures on AMLO, pressures on immigration. This is all now tied into the labor movement in a very real way. Um, I do think there is a lot of stuff learned from the collapse of the UAW in 2007 to its current, you know, remilitancy today. Um, I think uh it's been very heartening, particularly when you compare it to like the Teamsters, which wasn't bad, but also was, I think, greatly exaggerated by certain partisans on the left about how good that contract was mm. in the position of labor. But one thing that we are going to have to realize, and this is a good thing, is that labor in the U.S. right now, because of, frankly, a lack of supply and because of the refusal to return to prior immigration norms, for good and ill, mostly ill, but in this case, it will actually serve some good. Low-skilled wages are going to go up, which means inter interim-skilled or, or, or semi-skilled wages are also going to go up eventually, and we're going to see that in manufacturing in particular. Um, there's just not enough people. You're going to have to compete with jobs that were eventually seen as white-collar, and with... Uh, with like petty bourgeois crafts, which were also stable kind of blue collar jobs, um, which means you're going to have to increase working conditions uh, to the workers favor to do that. Um, but you're going to have to do so in a context of a seemingly stagnating economy. Now, I know that there's a, sec a section of the Jacobin left, particularly Seth Ackerman, 
who's taken to a kind of MMT can return us to 3% growth forever. Kind of, it's just political will, baby, uh, sort of orientation in the DSA under Jacobin. There are actually great debates about what's actually being measured and how and what you're taking as profit rates. And my friend Nico Villarreal actually says that part of what they're looking at is they're focusing too much on GDP. Mm. Um, and so that's going to be interesting as well. Um, and for those of you who think that this is just rambly, I think we do have to all tie this up into why the UAW is happening right now in the larger context. Um, and what the UAW represents. I sent you some articles, some of which were yeah. critiques of... You know, there are two things right now that get called the rank-and-file strategy. There's labor notes, Kim Moody uh, thought, which are not quite the same even between themselves. But And then there's Jane McElvey. And there's actually pretty radical differences between the two. Yeah. But interesting, Sean Fain actually represents... A different option, it doesn't automatically get categorized as a different option, which is the rank and file reform caucus, which is like the right. idea that rank and file members should actually flip sides and enter the bureaucratic end yeah. of uh, union staffing and leadership so that uh, more and more of that world could come from the same world as the workers and it would have a more radicalized or socialist or at least progressive orientation. Um, when people refer to the rank and file strategy in the DSA or in the left right now, they conflate all three things and they are not the same. And so that is an interesting thing because Sean Fain represents this idea of like rank and file move into leadership, but not necessarily in the, you know, self-elected leaders um, self-organized self shops since, although it's probably a move slightly closer to that than the kind of, frankly, corrupt unionization of the late uh, UAW and the aughts, which is when I remember first encountering it and everyone I knew in the car industry hated its guts. Yeah, so, of course. You know, and that's the same time as you had all sorts of foreign um, foreign makers and runaway shops down south which have been impervious, I think, for some very good reasons to UAW uh, organization. And when you throw corruption about, when we throw, when anybody throws the charge of corruption about, it seems like some sort of bureaucratic or moral failing of leadership. We, of course, here try to take a more structural reading of that and point out the uh, various different material and social organizational differences between the rank and file and this sort of organizational layer that exists on top of that, not only in what their duties and responsibilities are, uh, but also uh, how they reproduce themselves, right? So, which yeah. is, um, but let's break down these classifications, actually, because I yeah. don't know that all of your listeners really, I mean, I hope they would, given, you know, how much you cover labor issues, but really understand the kind of labels that we talk about, both in kinds of unions and in positions within a union. Right. Yeah, let's let's get down to it. Let's let's talk about that. I think before we move on, though, I um, it seemed as though you were uh, accusing maybe me and maybe Andy of, of putting on rose tinted glasses uh, with respect to this strike or uh, pointing to a significance that you think might not be there or downplaying uh, potential headwinds there might be for um, unionization and union structures uh, in the United States. 
I, for one, uh, I take all of your your analysis uh, well when it comes to the political economy, the future, uh, international trade flows, um, the movements of goods and the movements of jobs all over the place. I think that fundamentally we have to maybe through force of will <laughs> uh, and maybe through our political um, organization uh, and agitation take um, – a fundamentally optimistic line on this, even if um, so much churn is happening right now, that it seems uh, overwhelming and it seems like a lot of the basis for mass organization and mass militancy are fading away, or at least the circumstances are changing uh, in such a way that it's going to look really bad for the working class in this country. I, I think fundamentally, I'm kind of optimistic about all this. I really am. I feel as though... You've got uh, the, the what you point to with profits. I think is really really important. Um, the the failure of the rate of profit uh, to um, to keep up uh, certainly over the last fifteen, if not forty years or so, and the challenges that that points to uh, when you're talking about employment, and then ultimately the leverage that workers have to organize in this country. But fundamentally, I think that as we move into a different era, as things shift substantially. Um, I think there's a real opportunity that we have right now. And I think the UAW, uh, as much as this is just a single strike and it's only 133,000 workers, I am seeing stuff. And I think you're seeing, I think we're all seeing um, a way of confronting um, corporate America, confronting the bosses. That's fundamentally different than certainly what we saw in, uh, in, in 2007, 2008 but fundamentally different from what we saw in 2019, which is the last strike that the UAW was on. And I feel like, again, I, I like to talk about this. I, I probably use this phrase a, phrase a million times, but the subjective factors here I think are important. And I think that we might potentially be moving into a qualitatively different moment uh, in terms of American labor and uh, capitalist core labor in this country. That, you know, Maybe that's just me defending my rose-tinted glasses. I don't know how you would respond to that. But um, I'm, I'm fundamentally, I feel like we might even be up to the task this time. I have a trust but verify attitude in regards to this. I know a lot of what I say sounds like pessimism. And the one thing I will say to our listeners is that systemic pessimism is actually toxic to organizations. So um, when I am dr no a lot of the times the the idea is not that i am being systemically pessimistic the the idea is that we cannot lie to ourselves about where we are going into a certain struggle um what i think about what you know part of the the impetus of the last episode was like long durée yeah, of the American left to to this precise moment in a DSA election, which as as yours and my deray becomes longer and longer, we have the ability to remember <laughs> yeah. things going back right. longer and longer. Yeah, leading up to the DSA election, that's right. Um, I think with this, what I have to say is that if history is our indication on prior shifts, this is the culminating culmination and ending of one form of left and I think specifically maybe even left unionist orientation in the beginning of a new form. Mm. Um, whether or not that new form is better 
are worse, are just different, is still open. Which means I agree with that fundamentally. Which means I think if we say, oh, this is dead on arrival, that nothing's ever going to change for the unions, uh, the unions are in strategic retreat right now, well, then they're going to be, right? Like, because this is a moment where there is uh, a potential for reorganization, and we've already seen that reorganization is possible because that's what's led us here, right? Despite every strategic problem that we pointed out, despite the fact that I feel like social Democrats have been kind of gaslighting us about the past 10 years of union activity. Um, there is a real militancy out there. And what we are seeing and what we could see um, here, and like when we get into the categories and types here, maybe it'll make it a little clearer, clearer is that if this works, a lot of the problem that you have right now where people realize unions are good, but they don't really want to join them because they don't see the immediate benefit. They only see the, the abstract benefit, right? Yeah. Um, this could reverse that because you'd have a immediate win that also did not seem like what has seemed to be true since literally the 1940s. Right. That the unions are more or less lobbying organizations of one party. And yes. that has been a disaster. Um, and it would be highly ironic, but also in some ways fitting, if in this moment of the, quote, social democratic twilight that I think we might be in, um, that it's actually the unions who start to realize that even in a the moment they're being told that one party is going to be more favorable to them, even with Joe Biden making solidaristic stands with, with union workers opportunistically, I think, yeah. even with better rules coming out of the National Labor Relations Board under this administration, but we must remember their administrative rules that can change at any minute, um, that they may realize that just being the labor lobbying organization um, and the and the contract negotiating specialist will not be good enough anymore. Um, and if that happens, in a way, it's super hopeful from my perspective, because not only have we finally broken away from a kind of popular frontist organization that liquidates ourselves into the Democratic Party. But also, it wasn't the activists that did it, it was labor. Like, about fucking time, but that, like, that proves the point that, like, labor is thus a real and vital center of not just American politics, but of the American left again, which would be a fundamental victory for our orientation if that's where this actually happens. And in that sense, it would be a very good thing. And it would be the kind of thing that if say the DSA factions tailed would also be a good thing, even if they're tailing it because they're tailing the workers again, even though that's, you know, we complain about that. We, I have my critiques of even tailing workers. 
Well, but tailing, it, tailing workers when it comes to like mass industrial action versus tailing workers when it comes to reactionary cultural formation exactly. is far it's, different. It's like, it's like, well, thank God we're tailing the workers on what's important, right? Like, right. um, we're, we're, we're tailing again. Yeah, we're tailing them with with something that 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 necessarily has to be based upon militancy and self organization, and um, that this is I think you put your finger on, and maybe I got I got you out of a funk you've been in. I hope you put your finger on I think where I see the potential in this, and it may not. Uh, the, there's a very risky strike that's happening right now, a very risky strike. You know, you have um, the potential that this entire green energy. Uh, green vehicle transition passes the UAW by, and the name of that is Tesla, of course, right? And the fact that all these foreign uh, manufacturers have had the ability to push off unionization, even when, you know, like the company, like Volkswagen was saying, we'd love for you to have a union. Uh, workers were saying no. But um, yeah, like this could be that moment. And if it's not in this particular instance, I know, I don't know, I'm not sure when another opportunity is going to come up, but it probably will. Right. Because going back to the profits issue and the political economy issue, it seems to me that at least under Joe Biden, but even partially under Trump, there is a concerted effort uh, on the part of sections of the American ruling class, those sectors that are still uh, connected to uh, industrial production and manufacturing, or at least understand the uh, necessity for America to compete in that particular category that um, the $1.2 billion, which is going to the Ultima factory in Lordstown, Ohio, in order to basically create a like um, a partnership between Taiwanese uh, battery manufacturers for cars and uh, GM, that despite the profits, and this is this could be the story of the last 15 or 40 years or so, despite the profits, the American state is going to be putting resources into this, even if it's a... Um, even if it's a boondoggle, it's going to be putting money into this sort of manufacturing employment. And for as long as that lasts, as long as the American empire has the capability to do this, then we have the capability to move, right? We have the capability to act within that particular paradigm. So let's get into the um, the these uh, various different competing uh, socialist left ideas of unionism. You shared a few articles, which I think uh, we should put in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, one from isj.org, uh, Jane McAlevey's organizing model, uh, which points out that this is one that's been taken up in large part by the uh, social democratic left uh, in the United States. There's this counterfire piece about uh, Moody's new book that came out, Breaking the Impasse. Uh, which is very interesting. Um, I'm an old Moody head back to when he wrote um, From Welfare State to Real Estate when he was a Brooklyn College guy, which is about the political economy of New York City, um, and also An Injury to All, which was a great book from the 80s or 90s. And then the last one you sent was critical a survey. critical survey, critical survey of left unionism by uh, Fire with Fire, who I'm not familiar with, but this is a great piece. It seems to be from... Uh, rank and file organizer, a syndicalist uh, who has experience both in shops, shop floor struggles themselves, but also a bunch of the theoretical literature as, you know, let's not act as though uh, trade union leadership or the labor movement, you know, is unaware <laughs> of the impediments that they faced and their failure to break through over the last 20 or 30 years. This is a, this article is a survey of various different attempts to try to break through 
the impasse to try to go back to you know a, a, a moment of strong union organizing to bring back socialist organizing in some cases so yeah let's i think i'm going to start even a little before that and then i'm going to start with the five categories that these this uh these three articles gave us and then we can kind of deal with that and eventually it'll actually bring us to a crisis in the dsa believe it or not yeah um, full circle that's why this is 9.2 Right. In our in our obscure numbering system, this actually piggybacks off the last episode we did. Um, so historically, there have been uh, a few different kinds of union models that the left uh, and unions have worked with. There is craft unionism, which is seen as a development of guilds mm -hmm. uh, in some degree. So that's the AFL. Um, those are that's me. Yeah, that's that's both white collar and blue collar uh, cartelized crafts, mm -hmm. um, jobs trusts. Um, there is business unionism, which is kind of seen as developing out of craft unionism, but it at least organizes an entire business. But the critique of business unionism is that it has a tendency in order to prove its power to also want to manage worker militancy as proof of its own power. So right. as proving that they can strike, they're also proving to the bosses that they can control a strike. Um, so that's business unionism. There is one large union, which is maybe sectional unionism. This is where industrial unionism comes in. The CIO yeah. classically is kind of a, I would say it ends up being sort of a a clearinghouse of unions, but the idea was that it was going to represent all the business and craft unions together as an industrial sector. There's right. also true sectional unionization, um, which is where like there's uh, you know a union for an entire nation, not just a particular business that has yeah. never existed in the United States. It has existed in places like Italy and um, Australia. It's big in yeah. Australia. Yeah. In Australia. There's been um, some chatter over the last, I don't know how many years, five, 10 years about uh, the importance of sectoral bargaining. And I think even if some of it has come from the sort of Sorab Amari right, you know, but that particular pattern of uh, collective bargaining never took hold in the United States. In fact, CIO um, and AFL unionism, sort of uh, business unionism, took the place of sectoral bargaining. Pattern bargaining, let's say, took the place of uh, yeah. sectoral unionism. And sorry to keep hammering on this, but um, one of the interesting things that we're seeing with the UAW strike is a uh, rejection of the pattern bargaining. The, the standard pattern bargaining model where in the past the UAW has chosen one of the th big three automakers and simply struck them hoping to get the big, the best deal, the pattern would then follow to the other two. This is one of the reasons why it's an innovative step that they've taken in striking all three of them. And as we saw with uh, the fact that they didn't uh, increase the strike capacity against Ford because Ford was making better offers in the negotiation. It shows that they're actually trying to play the, the big three automakers off against one another. But that is like an exception in the United States. Most yeah. typically, uh, pattern bargaining has been the way it's been. Yeah. So another thing to think about is also conflictual versus non-conflictual negotiation. 
since the 1970s, non-conflictual negotiation has been the standard pattern, which means that uh, only in the case of where there is a strike is there taken to be a conflictual negotiating relationship. Um, and uh, the another thing to keep in mind is the professionalization of union bureaucracy, um, which starts off as a kind of organizer orientation mm. uh, from organizers in the rank and file who become basically employees of the union and not just employees of the shop. Um, but over the course of the 20th century uh, became highly professionalized and even trained in the same kind of business schools that you train managers. In. There's a Cornell um, school of uh, what is it? Labor management, essentially where a lot of our information, our statistics comes from, but a lot of the, uh, the heads of unions and staffers of unions come from, it's a highly professionalized industry now. Right. So th th those are the kinds of unions. So in the United States, we are going to be primarily talking about business unions and then coalitions of business unions like the CIO, AFL. Uh, the NEA technically is a coalition of like the mm. specific, like specific associations and unions um, within a field. So, so sometimes even within a, a sector of the economy, but just a singular sector, not in an industrial sector, you'll have also similar like uh, coalitions of unions who act in concert or are nested within each other. Mm -hmm. um, and they're often radically different. Um, even like NEA uh, sub branches vary wildly from state to state because of local labor law. Um, but they also vary wildly due to their own internal charters, uh, even in who they accept as membership. So this makes a lot of talking about this generically, which the left is given to doing, just going like, oh, join a union. Yeah kind of a problem because there's really big differences in structures here. Um, okay, but all that said, I think we should go into the critical survey of current left unionism. And unlike the article that I think we're going to draw the most from, I'm going to, because they kind of go through the new stuff first and then go to the old stuff. I'm going to start with the old stuff. And then the go old to the stuff. New st the, the new all st right. We've already mentioned trade unionism, which was the idea that you were respecting specific crafts. And in yeah. certain fields, like the railroads, they're still organizing crafts. So they're not even yeah. like organized by like business or job site. It's like the conductors, the, the whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm organized into a craft. We have various right. different jurisdictions. And so the battles are not just against the uh, the owners of capital, the contractors and the general contractors, but oftentimes jurisdiction like on the job site itself, because there's a, a jobs trust, a, a cartelization of a specific scope of work in the particular industry over which uh, you've claimed uh, and then fought over the years, over the decades, and in our case, over the centuries to have this particular um, work process be yours. And so it leads to a lot of um, backbiting and a lot of um, grievances and a lot of whatnot between the, the craft unions. And then forget about how, how easily uh, capital is able to use that to uh, break up solidarity, especially on picket lines. Right. Um, if we What we've seen recently in a historic move that I think maybe overplayed a little bit, but I still think is a good sign, is we don't think about it. But for example, Hollywood is divided up in craft unions and guilds. Yeah. And the SAG and the Writers Guild working in concert like this is actually historically not normal. Yeah. So we are seeing. They've never struck at the same time, the two right. of them. Right. 
so we're seeing craft unions and highly actually specialized, highly kind of elite and highly cartelized sectors uh, being pushed by technology to actually act like the rest of labor. <laughs> um, right, right, and right. right. I, I do think when people can shit on the SAG union as much as you want, and I think there's uh, in the Writers Guild as much as you want, but there's actually reasons to think that that particular element of it is a positive direction. Um, so, but to go back to the beginning, that's that's really origins of unions come out of guilds, and guilds themselves actually are kind of like uh, they weren't just. I think historically is a, a thing to see them as like just a way to organize labor, but they were also like kind of advocacy organizations before mm -hmm. capital. Mm -hmm. um, they had other community functions and as industry developed, they actually lost some of their other character and just got down into two things, which is protecting their craft and then also um, advocating for their craft. Uh, it became pretty clear early on that it was going to be a very limited model for unionization. And it was something right. that communists very quickly turned against. Um, well, the, the communist position going back to Marx and Engels was that this was an early development out of which labor would evolve. Right. That right. there was like a necessary relationship, as you said, between the medieval, the, the feudal guild structure and the craft unions. But that with the uh, socialization of production, with the production of the mass worker, uh, that the, the old craft unions would fade away and be replaced by mass organizations, industrial unionization. As it turned out, especially in the United States, uh, that wasn't the case, that these old cartels actually had a lot more power and that actually they were um necessary in a certain sense for capital to organize itself right? yeah absolutely and i think one of the things that we have to maybe fault socialist for doing is assuming the patterns of britain and central and central and western well really protestant central and western europe because it actually didn't <laughs> go this way in italy and spain either um uh, was the default pattern of unionization because we can look at the German situation and the French situations and the British situation and see this, although Britain eventually deviates pretty strongly in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, so it, let's just recap, uh, recapitulate that history in the vaguest form for our listeners. So in the early days of unionism, they're illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, they come out of these guilds and craft unions. The industrial unions are strongly opposed. They form, then they become organizations of, of the industrial union, both internationally, that's the first international, but also the first international is particularly weird. The International Working Men's Association. Right. In that it's, it's, it's got unions, it's got political parties, it's got other kinds of formations in it. Like the, it's we tend to try to we tend to misread the first international as being like the second international, which is a union of parties. Right. Right. Um, the nationally first bound. Yeah. Nationally bound parties. The first international is a union of parties, movements, unions, uh, nationalist movements, anti-nationalist movements. It's actually. I was, you know, I was looking at its history and somebody was asking me about the first schism recently. And I was like, yeah, it's actually surprising that the Bakunin Marx schism is what broke it. Cause like, there's so much in there that could have broke it at all times. Mm. And it, it was kind of amazing. Mm. Um, 
So that develops. Then what you have is when that that doesn't work, um, national national union movements coalesce. Um, in the case of France, it coalesce kind of partly through a state project. In the case of Germany, they coalesce in the consolidation uh, of Prussia into Germany, but also as oppositional to that initially. Mm -hmm. And become the beginnings of workers' political parties. Now, that also happens in Britain. Um, it does, yeah. Uh, but the, their fates deviate pretty strongly because British labor had more advantages due to British colonialism, and so that's usually seen as the explanatory difference. Mm. In the United States, these cartels have more power, but partly because the pressure of the working class is not there. Thank you, settler colonialism. There's a, yeah. there's an offset valve. Yeah, for... there's a big pressure release valve, which is go west, young man. Mm -hmm. um, and also, of course, historically, like the lack of a large and uh, diverse labor market. Uh, with which to ply workers off against one another. If you see the movement of Manifest Destiny going west, there's sort of the creation and recreation constantly of local labor cartels, you know, which now we would recognize as local unions as industry or extractive um, capital pops up in various different places across the country. And there's a process that goes on into the 20th century in the United States. And I, I think if you want a good contrast for this, you can look at Mexico, which has a similar pattern until actually the Mexican Revolution alters it to be more like Europe. Um, although the workers don't really win in that battle, but that's when they coalesce in a more European fashion. So that's our history. So that okay, that, then you go, well, then if if it's a clear victory from workers craft union into industrial unions and the parties but that isn't what we see in europe in the 20th century what happens and part of it is how independent do the unions remain from the parties in the state mm -hmm. and even in socialist countries that is an open and contested question at all times uh whether or not sectional unionizing is adopted and in most of europe and a lot of like even not in britain itself but a lot of british holdings it is adopted um, particularly uh, in places like Australia, I just did a whole episode on the history of labor in Australia. Oh, interesting. That are highly extractive. So, right. so sectional extraction is seen as a, a way to deal with this problem. Um, so you have those developments. Now in the United States, once that land grab is no longer a viable way to control labor, pretty quickly things shift. Um, I mean, we basically think of the end of the frontier in the early 20th century, and immediately we start having labor problems. It's mm. like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that happens that we have to deal with in the United States and unions is that uh, our mining conditions were semi-feudal, frankly. We don't think of them as feudal because they didn't involve like formal lords, but... But there were company towns and there was script. Right. And there was all sorts of means in which like labor wasn't truly free in the sense that we would think of it today. Yeah, it was not. It wasn't even, quote, wage slavery, unquote. Like, um, and then you also have sharecropping, which is another one of these weird American things, which like almost seems like serfdom, but isn't technically serfdom because you are technically free. You're not technically bound to the land, but you're debt bound to the land. 
So it's it's like not quite peasantry, but almost. And our, our earliest labor movements in the United States, unlike in Europe, uh, but like actually places like China and Russia where there were revolutions, interestingly, um, were coalitions of sharecroppers and craft laborers, all right? And when the sharecroppers went away, just because we quit organizing um, agriculture that way in the end of the 19th century, um, the progressive movement fell into the Democrats, which I've talked about before. Yeah. And then the problems of, of, of labor become readily apparent. So you move from like the Knights of Labor who are anti-immigrant, but also anti-strike even. They're just yeah. a labor city advocacy group. Yeah. Into, like a cultural institution. Right. Into the miners' unions, into what beginnings of the IWW and the, the SPA, the U.S. Socialist Party. So um, that happens all very quickly. Um, and it looks like we're heading on a similar trajectory to Europe. In fact, and, and we're doing it in an accelerated time frame, much yes. faster yeah. than they did. Yeah. Um, and World War II slash the New Deal happen. Yeah, slash and, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution happens. Yes. Well, yeah, the Bolshevik Revolution happens. Actually scares the U.S. government into being more concessionary to labor, but being more anti-union. Right. Um, I refer to that as the third or fourth Red Scare, because I, I, I count Red Scares going back to like 1870. So <laughs> okay. like, um, like Jim Crow as a Red Scare. Yeah, also like fears of the socialist uh, immigrants who fought for the Union, of which there are quite mm. a few. Um, the fear of the hunky. Yeah, yeah, the fear, the, the fear of uh, Italian and German labor um, after after we use them as shock troops in war. I mean, in the Civil War. Um, so you have first you have the the red the the, the Red Scare of 1917, which was actually probably more against anarchists than communists. But you know, the communists became a much more real part of that threat after. The Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, and you had returning veterans in places like Seattle throwing off citywide general strikes. Uh, the Seattle right. general strike of uh, of nineteen eighteen scared the shit out of the the regional and the national ruling class because they saw that these similar sort of tendencies that had uh, caused revolution in Eastern Europe might have ended up on our shore. And so the the anti union, anti communist, and anti socialist vein very much was tied up with Americanism. You know, seeing these as foreign imports, not just the ideas uh, as foreign imports, but from the actual actors, which is right. why so much of our Red Scare was based around deportations of various different immigrant groups, especially Jewish and Italian ones. So in the, in the running up of this in the 1920s, you see the development of a bunch of different uh, union organization strategies. You see the industrial unionism of the CIO. Which comes out of like progressive republicanism. I think people like it was not inherently related to the Democrats yet. That doesn't really happen until the New Deal. Um, you have the TUEL and the TUUL, which are the two groups explicitly tied to the common turn. Trade um, Union Education League. And yeah. I forget what the other one is. It trade becomes a union, Congress, right? Yeah, the trade union, whatever. And then they, they, they go into eventually after the end of around 1935-36 they start going into the um 
into the CIO. Uh, they they by the time you get to the TUUL, they are already working with the CIO. But by by the but after thirty six, they start really entering the CIO, and that's will be become important for talking about one of the strategies. Um, Let's not forget too with the nineteen twenties, you really have um, the sort of recrudescence of uh, Gompersism. Uh, you know, you have the National Civic Association, which famously was an attempt uh, under Hooverite conditions uh, to to create a corporatist model between craft uh, slash business unions on the one hand and big capital on the other. Because as the teens and 20s are going, you have this kind of progressive idea, uh, which is tied often to the Republican Party and tied to the trade unions that trade unionism in America has to be Americanized. And the way that that happens is outside of the state and it happens in Congress between capital and labor. And you needed to create strong bodies that represent this sort of corporatist model. The National Civic Association, of course, falls apart because of the great uh, contradictions between capital and labor in the, in the 1920s. But there are these attempts to overcome European style industrial unionism in an American context, which meant large trying to get the most skilled, most native-born workers um, precedence uh, in institutions and also create sort of civic federations that are uh, away from a sectoral model and away from an industrial model. And that, of course, fails completely. But a lot of the, the battles of the TU, uh, EL, and, uh, and, the, and the communists was a debate about whether they, you should be organizing within the American Federation of Labor, which is the large craft union federation at this time, or whether independent organi industrial organizations uh, should be built outside of that framework. And there were a lot of socialists still in the AFL, of course, in the early 20th century. So we have to, you know, think about that. I mean, one thing I want to point about about Gompersism, and this is not to tar it, uh, but it is similar to the actual industrial policy of Italian fascism, which was syndicate-based. Um, uh, one of the weird ironies of Italian uh, sectional organization is actually that the, the sectional bargaining um, shifted once the fascists were no longer controlled, but the sectional unions were born under fascist leadership. Mm. Like, and they um, continued. Yeah, and they continued. They were just communized. Uh, <laughs> well, they, they were highly influenced by socialists and communists uh, after the defeat of the fascists. Um, to to go back to the U.S. though, and to get to where we where we can actually start talking about these tendencies, um, Gompersism. The, the contradictions in capital are too high to build a corporate estate. Uh, and when it does happen, ironically, it happens under industrial unionism. So we do yeah. actually do it, but we do it under different conditions. Right. We'll get to that in a minute. Even the our other... industrial unionism is craft unionism in a real right. sense. <laughs> um, what happens, there's another tendency that we kind of hinted at, which is Debs. Um, you have the mining unions and the mining union you know, stuff for the late 19th, early 20th century. They end up being highly influenced by Margonists and other people who are getting ideas from Spain and Italy into the Mexican Revolution. And so this is the source of the other tendency of radicalism in the United States, which is syndicalism. Mm -hmm. um, and national syndicalism, which is a kind of fascist form, really doesn't take off, I think, actually because of Gompersism. Gompersism fills mm -hmm. the same role. 
Which is a comparism is a right syndicalism, right? right? It accepts capitalist property relations, but it it argues that the battle for um for rights and the battle for conditions and the battle for wages should happen outside of the state. In fact, that the state is uh we, we don't want to rely on the state. We want to instead do like the Republican thing. I mean that small R Republican thing, which is you fight to uh to maintain your power within the civic sphere. So this then leads us to the IWW and its syndicalism, which I think becomes anarcho-syndicalism later, and mm. partly in response to the Cold War. But in this time period, that distinction is not yet meaningful. Because what Debs in particular does is weds a kind of even slightly right-ish, not right-wing in the American context, but right-wing in the socialist context, uh, Socialist Party of America, to a syndicalist friendly platform and in america at this time syndicalism doesn't develop the hostility to the party that it does in europe because it is mm. often opposed to other forms of socialism uh and like second international socialism etc although there were syndicalists in the early part of the second international day of purge later um so this this leads to an interesting development. So we, we tend to think of syndicalism as it stands by the IWW later on. Um, but in this time period, there's no there's no clear distinction. And so, for example, someone like William Z. Foster is in the IWW. He's a syndicalist old wife. He's also a, a Marxist Leninist of, mm -hmm. a, a, of the of the Stalinist variety. Yeah. Um, Steel mill organizer. Yep. Yeah, uh, he's. He uh, becomes a major figure in uh, communist cooperating with the CIO. Um, and however, uh, his strategy sort of mutates into. So the, we had gompersism, but we're not going to consider that a left strategy, really, although there are some no. who are attracted to it. I just think it's it is a right wing. Yeah. orientation um there's daily onism which is a whole other interesting tendency which tries to basically argue that like the the sword of the worker is the party but the shield is like the the syndicate and that you have to create like a, a working unity between those two things and fight but daily onism all it is an american uh ideology and practice it doesn't really go too far past the, the early 20th century yeah, I mean, although its organization, I think I mentioned last time, it lasted until the aughts. But until a few years ago, I know they were they were divvying up like the the last of their resources. I think like five like five or six years ago, what was left uh, of the estate. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy how long that because that that actually makes them one of the oldest socialist uh, yeah. um, organizations on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things is interesting. So De Leonism is interesting because. It actually does wed party sectarianism with syndicalism. Um, syndicalism, I think, partly from the Cold War and partly because of its struggles of with the with the IWW struggles with like the TUUL later, mm -hmm. um, lead syndicalism to develop uh, both in its European and by the fifties and sixties in its American context to a hostility with working with anybody. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that they do is uh, that's different is they're willing to do dual car, uh, dual unionism, which is basically to encourage uh, 
rank and file socialist run unions as a primary organization to also compete with other unions and if need be destroy them. Yeah. Um, which makes cynicalism highly sectarian and doesn't work with anybody. And because of that, I think you see the IWW really declining pretty precipitously yeah. in both its daily onus and its non-daily onus form. Yeah, and one of the the um, upshots of that, of course, is by the time like national labor law is put into place in the 1930s, dual unionism as a non-majoritarian movement uh, is basically thrust away. It's it's made um, illegal in a real yeah, sense, right? You have all but outlawed. Like, all but outlawed. Yeah, like it is effectively outlawed. Um, you can't you can't have a job, or the the union will expel you if you have a second card, as they right. will today. Um, yeah, it's, uh, although it does, it's interesting. But a closed shop means that you don't work there. Yeah. Um, then you have the development of closed and open shopism. I know that you and I both had taken the stance that like closed shopism is actually good for labor bureaucracy, but it's actually not that great for labor because what accountability does bureaucratic leadership have at that point? But that became... So let's get to how that became the strategy in America and why we really start deviating from our European counterparts. And then we can get to these these uh, theories. Um, Should we take this as a good opportunity to go into the bonus? Because we're at about an hour. Right yeah, now. let's go into the bonus, even though we haven't talked about contemporary politics very much at all. <laughs> For more of this discussion, become a patron of Barnvlon or the Antifada. And we'll see you on the other side.